while you know Mr. Cheeseboro may have never been to Coffee County, the evidence about Coffee County is evidence that the enterprise existed and shows that the enterprise was working. And Cheeseboro is going to have to go to trial with Sidney Powell. No, the cheese does not stand alone. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. <laughs> I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Hey, yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN. Up in Eureka uh, in Oregon on the Central Coast, there we go, uh, on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO and Eugene's KEPW. Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's, AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, what else? Radio Free Brooklyn, No Lies Radio, Verdon Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites. Blanketing Planet Earth, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me and everyone I know from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, Desi, am I a swell fellow? Yes, you are. Thank you. Okay, just wanted to make sure. (laughs) Even I say so. All right, thank you. Uh, I am very excited to have a longtime a uh, frequent guest back on the program today who has helped make quite a bit of news since we last spoke with her on the program, I think it's fair to say. Oh, yes. But uh, very quickly, uh, a few items of note that are somewhat related in varying ways. We'll start here. A judge, a federal judge, ruled on Wednesday that the hearing, jury hearing, E. Jean Carroll's defamation lawsuit will only need to decide how much money Donald Trump will have to pay her after the judge found the former president was, in fact, already found to be liable for making defamatory statements about her. No, you are not having a deja vu if this story (laughs) sounds familiar. As you may recall, a jury earlier this year already found Trump liable. Uh, And they also decided he would have to pay five million dollars after the jury ruled Trump both sexually abused or raped the magazine columnist back in the 1990s and defamed her last year when he lied about her and about what happened. But the very next day after that, after that five million dollar verdict against him was handed down, Trump then went out and defamed her all over again during a CNN town hall. 
underscoring that, well, apparently the $5 million judgment obviously was not enough. Not a deterrent, apparently. Not a deterrent uh, for this disgraced former president. And yes, this rapist, according to the jury. The finding on Wednesday... However, that Trump's li- uh, liability in the matter matter is already an established done deal and that the only question now is the size of the new penalty that he will have to pay her. That, of course, is a significant blow to Trump, who's facing a whole bunch of criminal indictments and civil lawsuits, with many of them finally coming to a head, even as he remains the Republican Party's preferred candidate for the 2024 presidential race, according to the polling. Keeping it classy, Republican Party. Judge uh, Lewis Kaplan said that the federal jury's verdict earlier this year will, in fact, carry over to the separate defamation case that is set to go on trial in January involving statements that Trump made in 2019 about Carroll's sexual assault allegations while he was serving as president. In May... Of this year, after a two-week trial, a jury found that Trump sexually abused Carol and defamed her when he said in 2022 that he didn't rape her, that he didn't know her, and that in any event, she wasn't his type. The January trial now upcoming will be for comments that he made while serving as president, which he had attempted previously to claim that he had done in the course of his job as president, so he could not be held liable for them. Well, he lost that effort to evade accountability for those comments and now will be tried uh, on, on those 2019 comments. The quote, the truth or falsity of Mr. Trump's 2019 statements, therefore, depends like the truth or falsity of his 2022 statements on whether Ms. Carroll lied about Mr. Trump sexually assaulting her, the judge ruled on Wednesday. The jury's finding that she did not, therefore, is binding in this case as well and precludes Mr. Trump from contesting the falsity of the 2019 statements. Although her initial lawsuit was filed in 2019, the judge previously allowed Carroll then to include the new comments made at that CNN town hall earlier this year, just after the previous verdict. Got it? If you think this is confusing, I haven't even gotten to Georgia yet. <laughs> uh, on Wednesday, the judge also reje- rejected Trump's argument that the uh, that any future damages should be capped, meaning the previous award should not be a factor for this new jury. Carol is seeking more than $10 million in damages in the upcoming January trial. Trump has denied all wrongdoing, as he does, and has appealed the jury's verdict uh, in the earlier case and all the rulings against him, as he also does. Okay, in not wholly unrelated news as well, and certainly not unrelated to a story that I spent quite a bit of time on yesterday discussing my feeling that Trump may not, in fact, ultimately end up as the GOP's nominee for president next year. Just a feeling, not a prediction. Uh, Related to that, a uh, group on Wednesday... Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, better known as CREW, officially filed a lawsuit to bar former President Donald Trump from the primary ballot 
in Colorado next year, arguing that he is, in fact, ineligible to run for the White House uh, again under Section 3 of the U.S. Constitution's 14th Amendment, which bars candidates who, having already taken an oath of office, then go on to participate in an insurrection. The lawsuit, as AP reports, is likely the initial step in a legal challenge, perhaps a number of them, in fact, that they say seem destined for the U.S. Supreme Court. And I would agree. Oh, yes. The complaint uh, in Colorado, this is very interesting. The complaint in Colorado was filed on behalf of six Republican and unaffiliated Colorado voters Hmm. by uh, by crew. Now, Colorado Secretary of State Democrat Jenna Griswold has said in a statement that she had hoped, quote, this case will provide guidance to election officials on Trump's eligibility as a candidate for office, specifically referring to, you know, election officials in other states. We played uh, a bunch of remarks from a bunch of secretaries of state on yesterday's uh, broadcast about this and about what they plan to do. Concerning inevitable challenges under uh, 14.3 that are going to come their way. And frankly, just, you know, whether they these secretaries of state, they're the ones who decide whether or not a candidate is fit for the ballot or whether they meet the requirements to be on the ballot requirements concerning age, citizenship, residency. Residency. I mean, it's routine. It is. Although they normally don't have to look to see if they've committed an insurrection first. True. The uh, lawsuit in Colorado contends the case is clear, given the attempt by then-President Trump to overturn his 2020 election loss to Democrat Joe Biden and his support for the assault on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th of 2021. I should say the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, 2021. The 14th Amendment was ratified back in 1868 to help ensure civil rights for freed slaves and eventually for all people in the U.S., but it also uh, was used to prevent former Confederate officials from becoming members of Congress after the Civil War and of taking over the government against which they had just rebelled. The constitutional clause cited in the lawsuit in Colorado allows Congress to lift the ban which it did in 1872 for former Civil War soldiers as the political will to continue to bar Confederates at the time had dwindled. The provision has been rarely used since then, but it has been used since then. Crew and law professors of both parties contend the amendment is very clear and is a qualification for president, just as the Constitution's mandate that a, a candidate for the White House must be at least 35 years of age or older and a natural born citizen. An originalist, textualist, simple reading of the text of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment makes that very clear, though there are Obviously, Republicans who would simply prefer to ignore that section of the U.S. Constitution. The matter has never come up before the Supreme Court, however, uh, as to whether it can be used against a a president. So the Supreme Court, I guess, um, will will find out if they have now become corrupt enough that they could still end up ruling that the, uh, you know, finding the Constitution 
to be unconstitutional or something. I'm sure. I'm not betting a very good outcome on that one, well, unfortunately. Well, we will see. Uh, I, I'm sure Thomas and Alito are conferring with their GOP mega donor billionaires right now about <laughs> how to handle this. In its complaint, uh, crew asked the court to expedite the matter. This could be. This is interesting to expedite the matter so it can be resolved before the state's primary ballot must be set on January five of twenty twenty four. Quote, we understand that there's great interest in states across the country about this question, and it needs to be resolved expeditiously so there is clarity, said Donald Sherman. He's uh, Cruz chief counsel. So they have to have their ballot set for the primary. I think the primary is a few months later, but they have to have the ballot set so they can send to the printers and, and all of that stuff by January 5 of 2024. So they're filing this suit. They'll be asking for an expedited hearing so it can not only be heard, but no doubt make its way up through the appeals court and then to the U.S. Supreme Court, no matter how it goes. I, I, I suspect it's going to be appealed up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, the 14th Amendment, Section 3, was used just last year to bar from office a New Mexico County commissioner, uh, a guy by the name of Coy Griffin, head of Cowboys for Trump. He entered the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, and that was the first time that it was used to, in this case, remove someone from office. He was already a, a county commissioner. First time it was used in 100 years. Back in 1919, Congress refused to seat a socialist contending that he gave aid and comfort to the country's enemies. Uh, he was also barred by the disqualification clause. That was back during World War I. Cruz said it expects to file more such cases in other states and anticipates that other groups, such as our friends at uh, Free Speech for People, for example, may do so as well. Crew says it picked Colorado, however, for its first challenge because the state allows ballot challenges to go directly to court. In other words, they don't have to wait for a secretary of state to decide whether to bar or, or not or allow Trump on the ballot. And another reason, the group says it assembled a prominent roster of plaintiffs, including a former Republican leader of both houses of the state legislature and a conservative columnist for the Denver Post. So this is not a bunch of lefties filing this lawsuit. There was also one other reason uh, that uh, that Cruz chief counsel noted back in 2015. A Guyana-born natural uh, naturalized citizen lost his lawsuit to be included on the state's presidential primary ballot, failing to convince a federal magistrate that the Constitution's requirement that he be a natural-born citizen was unfair. A federal appeals judge then upheld that ruling, barring him from the ballot at the time. Well, that judge, as it turns out, was Neil Gorsuch. Really? Now on the uh, now a Trump-appointed justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. That's fun. And uh, <laughs> finally. Uh, prosecutors in uh, Georgia's RICO conspiracy case against Donald Trump and 18 co-defendants said Wednesday that a trial against all of them would likely take four months. Four months. Got that, Des? The mm. uh, estimate from Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade came during a hearing Wednesday before Fulton County Superior Court Judge Scott McAfee on attempts by 
two of those indicted to be tried separately. We will contend that a, a trial um, of these 19 uh, co-defendants will take four months, and that does not include jury selection. And it's also predicated upon whether or not, of course, uh, the defendants elect to testify or not. But four months is our, is our time estimate. Um, in terms of the number of witnesses, they're in excess of 150 witnesses that the state intends to call. Judge, we contend that we must prove the entire conspiracy against each and every one charged. Fulton County District Attorney uh, Vonnie Willis last month used the state's anti-racketeering law to obtain a wide-ranging 41-count indictment, said she wants to try all 19 defendants together. But this has already caused all kinds of, uh, I don't want to say chaos, but there's a lot of legal maneuvering going on uh, in the three weeks since the indictment was returned. Uh, Some of those charged are seeking to speed up the process. Some are trying to slow it down. Some are trying to separate themselves from others accused in the alleged conspiracy. Some are trying to move the charges against them from a state court to federal court. All of them, meanwhile, as of today, have now pleaded not guilty. On Wednesday, lawyers for attorneys Kenneth Cheesebro and Sidney Powell uh, argued, uh, well, that each of them wanted to be tried alone and early, speedy, uh, as of uh, October. The judge decided to keep their two trials together, however. Cheesebro had hoped to sever his case from that of Powell and uh, that the judge will uh, adhere to their request for a speedy trial, which would begin on October 23 at this point. So like a month and a half. Now, the judge gave the state until Tuesday to submit a brief on whether it should be a trial of two defendants beginning in October or of 19 Fulton County Deputy District Attorney Will Wooten said he understands the defense arguments against having their clients tried together, but he added the problem for them is that it doesn't matter because it's all part of the same overarching RICO conspiracy. Because this is a RICO conspiracy case, and because the evidence against one is admissible against all, one and two evaporate. There's no likelihood of confusion about which evidence applies to which defendant or which law applies to which defendant when all of them are alleged to have engaged in the same conspiracy. And it's significant that in count one of the indictment, the RICO count, the allegations set forth in counts two through 41 are all included in that count one. And so while, you know, Mr. Cheeseboro may have never been to Coffee County, the evidence about Coffee County is evidence that the enterprise existed and shows that the enterprise was working. And because it's a conspiracy case, Mr. Cheeseboro is, is uh, liable for what happened there, and it's admissible evidence. So I'm still a little bit unclear, and I hope to learn more as this all moves forward. I'm still a little bit unclear because uh, in order for any defendant, as I understand it, and this is uh, from Willis's, uh, one of her motions recently, uh, uh, having to do with this particular hearing today, she argued that if any of the other defendants in the RICO conspiracy are found guilty of having committed one of the covert acts listed as part of count number one in this uh, in this huge indictment, then they are guilty. If 
one is guilty, then they are all guilty. So that raises the question, at least to me, how can they be separated at all? How can they be uh, tried separately at all? I do not understand that. And I hope to learn more about it in the days ahead. But speaking of Coffee County and the now infamous Coffee County voting system software breach, allegedly organized by Sidney Powell, well, we've got a bit of news on that. And yes, uh, the woman who is largely responsible for the fact that any of these Coffee County related charges are being brought at all, well, Will she be one of those 150 witnesses called? We will ask her. Yes, you heard it here first on the broadcast, including the phone call of one of the now indicted team Trumpers confessing to the entire Coffee County scheme that has now become a major part of that conspiracy indictment against Trump and friends in the great state of Georgia. Joining us next for the first time since those indictments have come down is Marilyn Marks of the Coalition of Good Governance, the very definition of good trouble. That is next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with Good Trouble and a Good Troublemaker joining us momentarily. Special Counsel Jack Smith is still pursuing his investigation into efforts to steal the 2020 election a month after indicting Donald Trump for orchestrating a broad conspiracy to do just that. The widening probe, according to an exclusive from CNN this week, if you believe them, raises the possibility that others could still face legal peril, including six described but unnamed and for the moment still uncharged co-conspirators in that federal probe. Questions asked of two recent witnesses indicate that Smith is focusing on how money raised off baseless claims of voter fraud was used to help fund attempts to breach voting equipment in several states, won by Joe Biden. That, according to multiple sources of CNN that they say are familiar with the ongoing investigation. In both interviews, prosecutors have focused their questions on the role of former Trump lawyer Sidney Powell. She is one of the six still unindicted co-conspirators described in Jack Smith's federal indictment of the former president related to his attempted theft of the 2020 election. But she, Sidney Powell, has already been indicted in Georgia last month as part of Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis's sprawling RICO conspiracy case against Trump and 18 other defendants related to the criminal enterprise to steal the election from voters in the Peach State that year. Willis charges that Powell helped coordinate and fund a multi-state plot to illegally access voting systems after the 2020 election. Now, we first reported on that 
multi-state plot on this program with our guest at the time, Susan Greenhall of the nonprofit group Free Speech for People, after she had helped piece together evidence from the House January 6th Committee's testimony and other sources that the scheme to breach voting systems uh, software in several key battleground states was actually hatched in that notorious, chaotic Oval Office meeting on December 18, 2020, as Trump and Powell and Rudy Giuliani and a number of other Trump misfits had originally considered an executive order to have the military seize voting machines around the country in hopes of propping up the notion that there had been massive fraud via those machines. That misleading draft executive order actually cited real information from a long-running civil lawsuit, which we had been covering for years on this program. It was filed by another good government nonprofit group, the Coalition for Good Governance, But we will get back to that in a moment. The multi-state scheme in the meantime to breach voting systems has so far only been charged at the state level. For example, in Georgia by Fonnie Willis under state laws. Now, Susan Greenhall at Free Speech for People has been calling for a federal investigation of the matter, which CNN now seems to be confirming is actually underway. For her part, Sidney Powell has pleaded not guilty to the Georgia charges. According to invoices, however, obtained by CNN, Powell's nonprofit, Defending the Republic, hired forensic firms that ultimately accessed voting equipment, often unlawfully, according to prosecutors, in four swing states that were won by Biden in Georgia, in Pennsylvania, in Michigan and in Arizona. Those charges, as CNN reports today, now center around the voting system breach in Coffee County, Georgia, the rural Republican-leaning district that voted overwhelmingly for Donald Trump in 2020, which we've been reporting on for well over a year now after the Coalition for Good Governance's Marilyn Marks was the first to learn about that plot when Atlanta bail bondsman Scott Hall called her presumably thinking she was a fellow traveler and essentially confessing to the entire scheme in a phone call that Marx was smart enough to record and that we were the first to broadcast over our public airwaves and, yes, have continued to air many times since. You know, I'm the guy that chartered the jet to go down to Coffee County to have them inspect all of those computers and they scanned all the equipment imaged all the hard drives they imaged the hard drives yes how in the world did you get permission to do that we basically had the entire elections committee there okay and they said we give you permission go for it go for it That is the call that ultimately resulted in criminal charges for at least four of the 19 that were indicted by Fonnie Willis last month in Georgia, including Powell and Scott Hall. The uh, also the Coffee County GOP chair, Kathy Latham, who is also charged in her dual role as a fake elector in Georgia in 2020 and also charged the then election director in Coffee County, 
Misty Hampton. According to CNN's sources, witnesses interviewed by Jack Smith's prosecutors in recent weeks were asked about Powell's role in the fruitless hunt for evidence of voter fraud after the 2020 election, including how her nonprofit group Defending the Republic provided money to fund those efforts. Powell promoted her outfit, the uh, Defending the Republic group, as a nonprofit focused on funding post-election legal challenges by Trump's team as it falsely disputed results in key battleground states. Those failed legal challenges and successful fundraising efforts to support them were all based on the premise that evidence of widespread voter fraud was already in hand. But it wasn't. It never was. The entire thing was a scam or at least a crapshoot hoping to find evidence of fraud in voting systems or potentially worse. We'll get to that with my guest in a moment as well. According to documents reviewed by CNN, Powell's nonprofit was used to fund a desperate search to retroactively back up baseless claims that Trump's lawyers had already put forward in their failed lawsuits, challenging results in several states. As CNN notes, a series of invoices and communications obtained by election integrity groups, including the Coalition for Good Governance, show that Defending the Republic contributed millions of dollars towards the push to access voting equipment in these key states. But in a court filing after her indictment in Georgia, Sidney Powell denied any involvement in the Coffee County breach, though she acknowledged that a nonprofit she founded had paid the forensics firm that was hired to examine the voting system there. So she had nothing to do with it. But the group that she founded had funded it. Okay, and that is where Mark Neese at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution digs a little bit deeper, reporting that although attorney Sidney Powell is now denying she had anything to do or at least much to do with the South Georgia elections breach, public records indicate that she was deeply involved. Powell's nonprofit group paid $26,000 for computer analysts, to unlawfully copy Georgia's statewide voting system software in Coffee County on January 7, 2021. That's the day after the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. That is according to an invoice. She also represented Kathy Latham, the now also indicted Republican Party official who escorted the analysts into the county's election office in Coffee in a lawsuit that famously promised to unleash the Kraken on alleged fraud, fraud that was never found. Pa Powell's attorney wrote an emotion last week that she did not sign a contract for forensic imaging of Coffee County's voting system. She, quote, did not plan or, organ or organize the Coffee County trip, and she didn't request tech services from the firm Sullivan Strickler to undertake the project. But as the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reports, emails and documents show that Powell's nonprofit, Defending the Republic, in fact paid Sullivan Strickler technicians for the Coffee County job, and they corresponded with her even as they work. Quote, everything went smoothly yesterday with the Coffee County collection. Everyone involved was extremely helpful. That was Sullivan Strickler's chief operating officer, Paul Maggio, in an email to Powell on January 8, the day after the initial breach and the copying of sensitive voting system software that 
Scott Hall had bragged about to Marilyn Marks on that now infamous phone call. Public records don't show any response from Powell to Sullivan Strickler uh, in response to that specific email, but they do reveal the invoice for their work. $26,000 for four forensic experts who charged $6,500 apiece for one day's work each and another $200 for the nearly 400-mile round trip they took to the Coffee County Elections Office in Douglas, Georgia, the county seat, from Atlanta and back, where Sullivan Strickler's firm is based. They claim, the Sullivan Strickler, they claim no wrongdoing. They have not been charged. And they say that they, pres- uh, that they presumed that the high-profile attorneys and election officials who accommodated them were not asking them to do anything unlawful. Powell, for her part, had previously authorized payment from the group to uh, from her own nonprofit to Sullivan Strickler for election data copying work in the state of Michigan. That, according to an email she sent in December of 2020. But her attorney pushed back on the Georgia indictment and the allegations there, claiming that she was a key player in the copying of Coffee County ballots, memory cards, software, the data of which was later distributed through a file sharing site to people across the country where it remains in the wild right now and where election and cybersecurity experts are concerned that it could be misused in the 2024 election to manipulate results on the Dominion touchscreen voting systems that are used across the entire state of Georgia, as well as in jurisdictions in more than a dozen states across the country. That concern was notched up a level or three when, as we also first broke on this program back in May, attorneys for Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger revealed during a court hearing in the coalition's case, their lawsuit challenging the use of the state's vulnerable, insecure voting systems, that Raffensperger has decided against upgrading the state's voting systems with new security patches created by Dominion Voting System after the breach and recommended for immediate deployment by the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA. The failure to upgrade has now uh, made cybersecurity experts even more worried, and some elected officials in the state are furious at Raffensperger. For her part, Powell's motion, filed last week, says there was no contract with Sullivan Strickler, she wasn't the attorney overseeing the data collection, and the Coffee County Elections Board gave analysts permission to copy the data, which, under state law, is supposed to be kept secure. Documents showing whether they were given permission haven't been made public. In fact, every single email in the Coffee County Election Supervisor Misty Hampton's email account, the former election supervisor there, she is now indicted along with Powell and the others. But every email from her years of working there has now just gone entirely missing along with the laptop that she used during her years of service. She was removed following the breach for a supposed timesheets issue. But other than that, there's nothing to see here. Sidney Powell, quote, was obviously the force behind this plan and the funding of it, said Marilyn Marks. 
She may parse words to imply that she was not involved. However, the record is clear that she was very involved. Without her funding and arrangement of it, it probably would not have happened, charges Marks. Joining us now for the first time on the broadcast since the Georgia indictments were uh, finally handed up from the grand jury is Marilyn Marks, the longtime expert advocate for free and fair elections as executive director of the Coalition for Good Governance and apparently a grade A troublemaker, a good troublemaker on behalf of everybody in this grateful nation. Marilyn Marks, welcome back to the broadcast. Thank you so much, Brad. It's great to be back. And thank you for the encouragement to make trouble. <laughs> well, listen, I, I, I think first, con- congratulations are in order and thanks are in order uh, for your years long effort in Georgia, culminating uh, for now in, in at least four of the co-defendants who were charged with Trump in the uh, in the funny Willis Rico case. For years, I have seen. Your reports on your work from mainstream outlets uh, describing it as something like, quote, evidence obtained from a long running lawsuit in Georgia (laughs) without actually crediting you or the coalition uh, for good governance, even though it was your tireless work that did most of the heavy lifting here for both you know, prosecutors and media. Is your phone finally ringing off the hook, Marilyn? Are you and your organization finally getting the appropriate credit in, uh, in covering all of this? Well, um, of course, we, we would always like a little more recognition, but, um, but we're, the phone is ringing off the hook. Good. I'll tell you, Brad, that, that you, know, you are one of the few journalists who will kind of tell it like it is and that you don't hesitate to say where the information's coming from. You're not trying to tiptoe around Brad Raffensperger, mm-hmm. which is what so many of the reporters are trying to do because, you know, we have not been hesitant to say that Brad Raffensperger has a big part of creating these problems and, you know, not dealing with it appropriately. Mm-hmm. So I think that is part of the reason that many reporters who are still trying to keep, you know, access to that office um, hesitate to talk about where this information came from and who was making this trouble in the background. Mm-hmm. They're uh, they're afraid of of Brad Raffensperger. He doesn't seem very scary to me. But let me I will get to him. <laughs> I'll get to him in a second. What I really want to know okay. for the moment, because we played this audio so uh, often, have you heard anything from? Now, uh, criminal defendant Scott Hall, since that <laughs> infamous phone call in which he confessed to the whole uh, the whole plot originally. No, I haven't. I think he realized that he, unlike Trump, had not made a perfect phone call <laughs> well, at that time. Yeah. Uh, so no, and you know, he was no, he was not anybody I knew. I think people assumed he thought he was making a friendly phone call. He called me, threatening me. He called me threatening me saying that that he had hacked into our voting our excuse me he had hacked into our litigation files and wanted information he couldn't find that's why I hit the record button he literally because every time I play yes. it I hear from people why did Scott Hall do that why what was yes. he hoping to get what was he hoping to get from you well what had happened is he he called to try to threaten me and scare me and say that he had hacked into our files, he couldn't find some deposition transcripts he wanted, and that I needed to turn them over to him. 
And instead of slamming the phone down, which was my first inclination, uh-huh. I instead decided to go into playing the sweet little old lady mode <laughs> and and turned on the record button and kept him on the phone for about an hour. And it was 55, zero minutes into the conversation where he just blurted that out about, I'm the guy who hired the jet to go to Coffee County. My um, God. And so, but, he, but, but, he, but he actually called you. Confessing to a crime, right? That yes, I, I, we hacked into I, your files? Yes, and that's why I hit the record button is because, in a, and I didn't get that part. I didn't react fast enough. Yeah. It came in such a shock. He and some of his colleagues have been completely obsessed by a, an election director, maybe a, not director, but, but a, a manager in the election department at Fulton County who is Nigerian. And, you know, they're coming from a very ugly place, these guys are. And Mm -hmm. so they've been obsessed with this guy. And we had taken his deposition a long time ago. And they were determined to get their hands on the deposition and Mm -hmm. our notes and that sort of thing. And the way they claimed to have done it, if they couldn't find it, they said, is by hacking our litigation files. So he let me know early on in the conversation that he was a tough guy. He had people who were, you know, tough, uh, tough people who mm-hmm. could, who could get what they needed. And then he proceeds to tell me and demand that I give him this, this information that he couldn't get by hacking our system. Wow. Of course, after I, you know, the, the real reason I was keeping him on the phone was to try to learn what he had purportedly done with mm-hmm. our, with our uh, litigation files. Wow. And then it's when he blurted this stuff out. I mean, I, I kept, you know, was encouraging him to talk by talking about all sorts of different things Mm -hmm. sincerely with him. And then, then, then this disclosure came. (laughs) Well, that tough guy is now facing (laughs) uh, some very serious criminal charges. Uh, He was in fact, Scott Hall, I think the first one to show up and have his mugshot taken and and to be uh, released on bond. Gosh, I hope he knows a good bond uh, bonds bailsman or what, <laughs> bail bondsman. But uh, uh, Maryland, there was a, a trial, a hearing, I should say, that just finished up in the uh, in the Fonnie Willis case uh, just shortly before airtime here. As Trump attorneys Ken Cheesebro, uh, the alleged mastermind behind the fake elector scheme, and Sidney Powell, who allegedly organized the voting system breaches, where they're arguing uh, for a, a speedy trial and to have their their cases severed from the other plaintiffs. It does not look like from the other defendants. It does not look like the judge is going to grant them that. But the uh, district attorney, Fonnie Willis, reportedly told the judge that her sprawling case is going to take about four months and include more than 150 witnesses. Right. Will you be called as one of those uh, witnesses in this case, to your knowledge? Uh, to my knowledge, I haven't heard anything about that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, of course, I was not a firsthand eyewitness to any of this. We were mainly the people who just kept chasing the information. And I, I did take the Scott Hall phone call. Yeah. So if that were to be appropriate, you know, to, for them to call me, I, I'll certainly do whatever <laughs> anybody needs. But I don't I don't have any indication at the moment that they are that they are planning to call me. But um, it's going to be fascinating, but that, absolutely fascinating um, trial. And and that was, uh, I, I beg to differ, I think you are a firsthand witness here because of that phone call. If that call is going to be introduced, then I think you're going to have to show up to a 
explain where it came from. As to Sidney Powell, I mentioned her uh, in, in the opening. Uh, what do you make of her claims as, as, as part of her not guilty plea in, in Georgia that she knows nothing about all of this software breaching <laughs> business? She had nothing whatsoever to do with any of it, at least in Georgia. Is that in any way credible based on your years of investigation <laughs> at this point? Of course, it's not credible. When you take what she is trying to communicate, when you look at the document that her attorney filed with the court and you begin to parse the words there, it may be in some hyper literal way, you know, true that she signed no such contract. Right. It was an electronic uh, <laughs> typing in of uh, her, of her uh-huh. signature. You know, she did not plan the Coffee County trip. Mm-hmm. Well, no, she didn't plan it. She told other people to. As you begin to parse through her uh. statements, you know, they uh, they may not be false, but they are certainly misrepresenting what happened there. So I don't think this is going to go over very well when when somebody actually presents the facts. Mm. It was fascinating to listen to this today uh, to the extent that I could. She presented or her attorneys presented all those same excuses again, saying, oh, we had total permission to go into Coffee County, as Scott Hall said on the tape. Well, no, they, did, they didn't. They, well, they didn't they have permission from the uh, Misty Hampton, the election director? Right. There? But they are claiming they had the permission of the entire election board. And there is no evidence that um, they had any such permission of the entire election board. We know they had permission of Eric Cheney because he was part of the scheme and was there all day. But there's no indication that the whole board gave their permission. They claim they did not. Her attorneys said it again today. They repeated all these things. By the way, in the hearing today, at least the portion I heard, Coffee County must have been mentioned, you know, six dozen times. Yeah. And, of course, none of that would happen if not for you. And, uh, by the way, Eric Cheney, uh, I believe he was a member of the Coffee County Board of Elections. Correct. Uh, but that has, uh, what, five five people on that board? Am I five right? people five on people. the board. Five people. Correct. And they all did not give permission for these folks to come in. I don't even know if a majority of them uh, came in uh, or, or gave permission. We have been reporting at bradblog.com now for a while about how, the entire election board in Coffee County and the uh, city, uh, the county commission there has just locked down. They yes. do not want to talk about any of this, about what happened here, about who knew what, both before and after, which so- sort of brings me to my next point. You know, among the ironies here, Marilyn Marks, is that your so-called long-running civil lawsuit is not even about the breach of the statewide voting systems in Coffee County, yeah. per se, but it seeks to force the state to move from unverifiable, insecure touchscreen voting systems to verifiable hand-marked paper ballots, something that, in fact, I think that many on the MAGA right at this point would actually support. So how does the breach in Coffee County actually affect the concerns that you argue in your case against the Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger? Right. Well, um, Brad Raffensperger never denied that the system is very vulnerable. And in fact, in January of 2022, he was at a press conference and he said, well, the, you know, yeah, if you give the software to people, yeah, they can hack it and change the result. 
But that's not possible because we have such good physical controls. It is, on, <laughs> it is only in the hands of trusted people who would never, you know, allow it to be compromised. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, once we heard that, at that point, I decided I'm going back to the drawing board and I am going to expose the Scott Hall tape. Uh-huh. And this, yeah, well, I didn't even remember I had the tape, but the whole Scott Hall breach, mm-hmm. I am going to, I'm determined I'm going to get somebody to believe me on this because, you know, the secretary is taking the position that this is what protects the system. And clearly we see that insiders are a true threat. And in fact, and so that, that is why is this so core to our case Mm -hmm. here is because we are proving what we've said all along. No, you just cannot rely on hoping that the insiders and all of the people, whether they be the truck drivers that deliver the machines or the library workers who mm-hmm. set them up, you know, are all going to be very careful on the security front. So this is why it's important to our case. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, go ahead. And well, no, it, it actually shows, I mean, this is something that goes back years and years to this uh, sort of phony commission that was uh, set up and it had uh, uh, Bush family friend James Baker uh, in charge of it, along with Jimmy Carter, who they somehow hoaxed to be a a part of this. But they had warned way back then that insiders are, you know, really the, the greatest threat to any elections as in any industry. And it's something that I've heard from election officials for years that, oh, yeah, sure, our system are hackable, but only if you get access to them, which is simply impossible with the great security <laughs> that we have. And obviously that security includes inviting random people in to open them up, copy them, do anything they want with them, as we saw in in Coffee County. Right. Based on your you know, actual investigation of what went on in Coffee County, now that there are indictments there uh, in Georgia for four people related to the scheme, are you satisfied? Uh, and I realize your case is a separate track. Your civil case is a separate track from that criminal case. But are you satisfied that the matter has been thoroughly dealt with, thoroughly investigated oh, at this point? Oh, my goodness. By... No, not even close, Okay, Brad. yeah. Not even close, because there is only so much Fonny can do. You know, she's she is mm-hmm. indicting 19 people, mm-hmm. you know, and she's going to have 150 witnesses, as you heard, mm-hmm. that, you know, she, her plate is, in, is full. But yet there are so many people that were involved in this Coffee County breach that, you know, have not been held to any kind of accountability. You know, the the Georgia Bureau of Investigation has been given this case a long time ago, Mm -hmm. and not much is coming out of that at all that we can see. The Secretary of State and State Election Board, they've not even begun an investigation of Coffee County. That's Not Brad, even begun. That's Brad Raffin. I just want to make that clear. That's Brad Raffensberger's office, the man who is, you know, if you listen to Democrats, uh, he's one of the good guys here because he stood up to Trump on that phone call, that perfect phone call, strong arming him to find uh, 11,780 votes or whatever. But you're saying his office, two and a half years later, has still not begun a real investigation of what happened in Coffee County. That is absolutely correct. What they did is said, oh, we're just going to turn the criminal aspects of this over to the GBI, Georgia Bureau of Investigation. Uh But they are doing nothing 
at all. They've not even conducted one interview. They've not picked up the first piece of paper. They've not done anything to consider what are the impacts on the voting system? What are the impacts for future elections? How did this go wrong? What kind of better rules should we have had in place? What kind of reporting structure should we have had? You know, they have still not put in a single rule or a requirement mm-hmm. for reporting a security incident. I, I, if coffee happened today, they wouldn't have to report it. I, yeah, and, you know, I, I happen to believe uh, with the reporting that we've done uh, that Scott Raffensper- uh, Brad Raffensperger knew about this very early on and has essentially yeah. been helping to cover it up in various ways ever since. Do, do you agree with that? I do agree with that. And why would you, know, you do, do that? We have, do we have it proven? Certainly not. Well, I think that if you think back to the circumstances at the time and all of the the flack that was was happening with respect to the Dominion system mm-hmm. and people were really upset with Raffensperger because of how the election had gone and the lack of transparency in the 2020 election, I think that once they found out that there had been a breach, if they did, and of course I don't know for sure, that it would have been natural for both Dominion and the Secretary of State not to want it announced and be exposed to the world. Because if nothing... Um, You know, we don't know for sure what happened, but, you know, he himself said in an interview that they learned of it just after it happened. Uh, which, even if that is true, even if they did learn just after it happened, uh, there, his uh, top guy at the time, Gabe Sterling, was speaking at the Carter Center of all places at a forum in which he was saying, oh, both people on the left and the right are uh, claiming these crazy conspiracies. I guess he puts you on the left. Never mind that you spent most of your life as a Republican. (laughs) But even then, even after you had already deposed him in the case and, as I understand it, played the Scott Hall tape for him. Yes. He said this at the Carter Center in April of 2022. We had claims, even recently, there was people saying, we went to Coffee County, we, we imaged everything. There's no evidence of any of that. It didn't happen. There's no evidence of that. It didn't happen, Marilyn. And what we, excuse me, go ahead. No, no, I guess you're making it all up. I I mean, what do you mean it didn't happen? He (laughs) he had already heard the, the tape. Not only had he heard the tape, but it appears from some emails that we picked up that the Washington Post had already done reporting, had talked to Misty. Misty had acknowledged it, and they had reached out to the Secretary of State's office in early April. You played a tape from April the 29th, Mm -hmm. but in early April, several weeks before that tape, they had told the Secretary of State, we believe that they had confirmed that something like this did happen by talking to Misty. (laughs) <laughs> so the idea for them to be saying, oh, we didn't know anything about this, didn't yeah. happen, is really quite odd. Odd, insulting, <laughs> uh, but again, that's Gabe Sterling, the top guy in uh, on voting systems in uh, Raffensperger's uh, office at the time. He was the guy, famously, people may remember, he went out and tried to call, call on people to lower the temperature because, you know, there had been very real threats against poll workers and so forth. But here he is out there seemingly lying 
about you, Marilyn Marks, and about what happened in Coffee County, which we now know did happen, at least according to the district attorney who has charged four people criminally in the matter. Finally, I've got about 30 seconds here. Uh, sorry for not having enough time, but it just gives me an excuse to have you back soon, Marilyn. Uh, your case uh, started all of this, your federal lawsuit to force Georgia to finally move to hand-marked paper ballots. That, I think, has been running now for about six years. What is the status of that case, and will we finally get a ruling on the actual case on that matter in time now for the critical 2024 elections in the Peach State? Uh, We did learn that we are going to trial in January, and so we're really looking forward to putting on all of this evidence, Brad, and um, certainly we are hoping for a decision that will at least protect the November elections for 2024. And after all, let's think about this one thing. These breaches that happened in Coffee County, they are still ongoing. Mm-hmm. Remember, all that software was posted on the internet with lots of people who took it. Nothing has been done to mitigate it. So if you think about it every day that people have their hands on that software, sharing it with others, the breach continues. <sighs> Well, uh, I actually do think about it every day, and it terrifies me. So thank you for being out there, being a grade-A troublemaker. Marilyn Marks, uh, the longtime uh, expert advocate for free and fair elections as executive director at CoalitionForGoodGovernance.org. And remember that name. Go visit that site. Help them out. Uh, in their work here because uh, so many outlets don't even mention her name, much less that of her uh, her group, which is the small private uh, concern that has actually changed everything as far as I'm concerned when it comes to what's going on in uh, Georgia with Donald Trump and everything else. CoalitionForGoodGovernance.org and follow her on the site still known as Twitter at Marilyn R. Marks. The number one, Marilyn R. Marks one. Thanks, Marilyn. Thank you, Brad. All right, we've got to get out. Yes. <laughs> Late as usual. Uh, my thanks again to Marilyn and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Any show we have ever done, all of which is made possible by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. My thanks as well, of course, to Desi Doy and our producer. Yes. Uh, if you'd like to drop me an email, you can. I'd love to hear from you. I am Bradcast at Bradblog.com on the Facebooks, Mastodons, and sites still known as Twitter. I am the Brad Blog. See you there until we see you here again, hopefully tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. listening to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener supported. Thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com slash donate. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1934. That was the day that became known as Bloody Thursday. Seven striking workers were shot dead and another 30 wounded at the Jacola Mill in Honapath, South Carolina. 
the great textile strike of 1934 had started on September 1st. The 22-day strike spanned the eastern United States from New England to Georgia and involved close to a half a million workers. The main issue was the dreaded stretch out, increased workloads at the same or even reduced pay rates. Striking textile workers implemented the flying picket squad tactic employed by Minneapolis Teamsters earlier that summer. Hundreds drove from mill to mill to prevent scabbing. Mill executives across the Piedmont were stunned and terrified at the strike's effectiveness and the workers' militancy. Strikers at the Chicola Mill had formed solid picket lines at the gate when scabs and special deputies armed by the mill owners opened fire. All seven were shot in the back as they tried to escape the hail of bullets. According to a New York Times article the following day, the killings marked, quote, the beginning of the second bloody phase of the strike as one town after another reported completion of preparations to resist the flying squads and the picketing activity of the strikers. Frank Beecham, the grandson of Chicola Mill owner and mayor of Honapath Dan Beecham, has worked to unearth the history of the massacre and apologize for his grandfather's cruelty. He notes that, as in many southern mill towns, after the strike went down to defeat, those who struck were fired and blacklisted. Those who retained their jobs essentially took a vow of silence never to discuss the strike or the massacre again. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com.